I'll ask you, if you will, open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, as we continue our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount and looking at the uh, Beatitudes, and specifically in these first, these first three Beatitudes that we see in verses 3 through 5, in which we are confronted with an aspect of Christian character in which we evaluate self. But I want to, before we get to our text this morning, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. It's a pretty simple question, pretty straightforward question, but a very serious question. Why are you here? When you came to church this morning, what motivated you to come? Or put another way, what did you expect in coming? Now, I recognize that there is a variety of answers to this question, yet I would hope that we could all agree that we have come to glorify God and to grow in our relationship to Christ. And while we know that is, should be our purpose and our level at some level, I think all too often our expectations for accomplishing that are often not very high. And what happens is because we're not really expecting much from our time in, among God's people in the congregation of the assembly, we don't really get that much out of it because so often our, what we get out of it will follow our expectations for what we're looking for. But what if this morning as you are sitting there and as you've come into this place and gathered with God's people, what if we raised our expectations for ourselves and for our church? What if we came expecting to be changed, knowing that we were going to be taught the Word of God, and knowing that God delights to work through the proclamation of His Word to the changing of hearts and minds unto the glory of Christ's name. What if we came with a readiness of mind and a humility in our heart, knowing that we need His grace, knowing that, we're, that what we're about to do, what we're about to experience, could change our life, forever. Do you think if you had that expectation you might listen a little more closely? Do you think that you might gain a little bit something, a little bit more of something out of the message? Would you be looking, not for the mistakes that I sometimes make, or for inconsistencies and mannerisms or the awkwardness of moments, but be looking for what God has for you today. That should be our expectation. That should be our desire. That should be our hope. What does God have to say to you today? I think we could all use a renewed sense of awe of God, a renewed sense of expectation for what comes from the preaching of God's Word. I know for me, I know 
I'm weak. I'm imperfect. I'm in need of what God has been teaching me throughout the week and has given for me to share with you. And I know that God's word is living and powerful and it's meant to change lives. I know that. I want to see that. I'm looking for that. I'm looking for the power of God to be at work through the proclamation of his word. So when God speaks this morning, in the reading of his word, God is speaking to us. In the explanations and proclamations, I pray that God is speaking to you. Be attentive. Ask yourself, what does God want me to do with this truth? Don't just be passive in your listening and in your attendance. I think this is especially important. And any time we come to the reading of God's Word and the study of God's Word, it's important for us to ask ourselves that and to have an expectation of that. But when we come to something as significant as the Sermon on the Mount, as it was preached, or as it's recorded for us by, by, in the Gospels, in the words of Christ, it's meant to be life-changing. This sermon that Christ preached, it's meant, as Jesus starts off and begins to speak of the blessing of God on the lives of people in, in a manner that is inconsistent with the expectations of the people, it's meant to get our attention. It's meant to draw us in. It's meant to bring us to a place of submission to his authority, that we might learn to copy his example and to be conformed to his likeness. He wants us to understand what it means to follow him. The, the, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is a message to teach us what it means to live in Christ's kingdom, what it means, what character ought to be exemplified in us and through us. And Jesus speaks in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. He speaks in a way that demands attention. And he is careful in the consideration of the things being said. And he speaks of the blessed reality of a life that truly belongs to to God. Is that something you might be interested in? I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence and honor to the reading of God's Word as we read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Gracious Father in heaven, as we approach your word this morning, I ask first of all that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open up our hearts that we might receive instruction that we might be convicted by the moving of your spirit and the proclamation of your word to pursue that for which you have brought us here this morning. That you would bring conviction in our hearts and renewed passion in our lives. That you would have our way as we submit ourselves 
to the truth and the power of your word. I pray, Father, for strength and wisdom and understanding in the proclamation of truth. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified and that your church would be edified, encouraged, equipped, empowered for the glory of your name. And it's in that most holy and precious name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. We began to examine this passage last week, and we looked at the first of what is known as the Beatitudes. I don't know, I don't think I mentioned it last week, but we call these the Beatitudes. It's, it's named after the Latin word for blessed, which starts these first nine verses of the sermon. And that's where the Beatitudes comes from. But I think it's interesting because a lot of uh, preachers over the years have taken the Beatitudes and kind of said they are the way to look at it. But Jesus isn't instructing us so much as he is describing for us what true Christian character looks like. He says, for those who are following after God, for those that want to be a part of the kingdom. This is what it looks like. And he starts off, and, and we began this last week, and we looked at this first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said that in, in each one of these Beatitudes, there is, of course, the declaration of blessing. Blessed are. There is a condition for the blessing, the poor in spirit. And then there is the description of, of the blessing itself, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This first beatitude we discovered last week was the beginning, describes for us the beginning of faith. That for those people who have come to the point, or have come, yeah, come to the point of recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy, that's where faith begins. You come to a point where you recognize that you have nothing to offer God, that you're totally dependent on Him to save you, you're totally dependent on Him to forgive you, you're totally dependent on Him to redeem you, you're totally dependent on Him to impart to you new life, and then you come in that poverty of spirit and you seek forgiveness and you seek acceptance based not on your merits, on what you have to offer God, because spiritual, being spiritually poor means you recognize that you don't have anything to offer God. But being spiritually poor also means that you don't think yourself to be better than anybody else. You recognize that because of sin, we're all equal before God. We have various sins, various degrees of sin from a human perspective. We have various ways of looking at sin. But the reality is, is, is regardless of our past, regardless of our even our current situation, we have nothing to commend us to God. The only thing that makes us different as believers from anybody else in the world, is that we've been forgiven. So we have a different position towards God, but we are no better. We're only better in our position, but we're no better in our character, we're no better in our morality, we're no better in our ability to commend ourselves to God. Being poor in spirit, it's the opposite of being prideful in spirit. It is humility. 
And that humility is what is necessary to begin faith. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It, the, 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 the Beatitudes begin with a present tense reality for the beginning of faith. Everything um, that's following is going to be future tense. Everything beyond this, as we look at the next Beatitudes, they're going to tell us the, the blessings are those things which will come to us. But this first one, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. This is the beginning of faith. We begin with a humility in spirit and we come before God and we seek His forgiveness and so that we might come to know Him. And when we do, He says, the kingdom of heaven is ours. That is the beginning of faith. And what a blessing it is to have the kingdom, to be part of God's family, to be adopted by the Lord, to be accepted, not in accordance with our doing, but in accordance with what Christ has done. We talked a little bit last week about the word blessed itself and this declaration of blessing, how it's a word that is sometimes translated as being fortunate or being, or being happy, and, but it also carries the idea of being or of having God's favor resting upon you. And that's the primary sense that's being used here. But I like uh, what Matthew Henry did in his commentary, he, he actually combines the two different definitions, indicating that those on whose God's favor rest are those who are truly happy. So if you wanted to read this as, as happy, then I think it takes a little bit away from it, but the, the reality is, is if you have God's favor resting on you and yours is the kingdom, then you can be happy. Happiness follows the blessing of God. So we have the beginning of faith, but it doesn't stop. I mean, faith has a beginning, right? But it doesn't just stop there, it, it continues. There's, there's a, a continuation in our faith. We begin by being poor in spirit. We begin our relationship in, in spiritual humility. But there's also a continuation of that faith in which there is a brokenness of faith. And as we move into verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now we have to understand, first of all, that the mourning that's being spoken of here is not just mourning in, in general. Though I think we would all agree that God does provide comfort to those who mourn. I mean, if we mourn for the loss of a loved one, God does bring comfort to us. But that's not the primary context from which Jesus is speaking. He's speaking of a spiritual mourning. It's a spiritual reality. All of the things in the Beatitudes are spiritual in nature. I mean, he sets the context for us in the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? That sets the context for us. But even as you follow on, as you, as you move on be, beyond that, um, um, in the, the spiritual aspect of it, blessed, in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, these, these are spiritual realities. So when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not speaking just primarily in that, in that sense in which, in which that we're comforted in those moments when, when we experience mourning in life, but there is a mourning that happens in the life of a believer over the reality of sin. 
That reality of sin is manifested really in, in two ways in which should lead us to a place of mourning. First of all, we ought to mourn over our sin. We say, well, how is that any different than the, than the being the poor in spirit? Well, it's different in this. Being poor in spirit brings us to the place of salvation in which we inherit the kingdom of heaven. But once we're saved, we still deal with sin. Sin is still a reality which we have to struggle with. It's still something that we have to overcome. It's still something that's, that's working in our lives. You know, before I came to faith in Christ, I used to think of, of sin as about just all, any bad thing that I would do. You know, if I skipped school, I knew that was bad. I knew that was a sin. You know, I didn't really care all that much, but that was, that was sin. If I, if I lied, if I disobeyed my parents, I knew those things were wrong. I knew those things were sinful, but, you know, but I still did them. When I came to faith in Christ, the first thing that God did was bring conviction on my heart about the things that I knew were sinful, right? It led me to a place of being poor in spirit. I was, I was, I was bankrupt in my spiritual um, knowledge and understanding, and I came to faith in Christ. But then what happened? Did God just, just take all of that away? No. What did he do? He began to dig into my life, and he began to expose things that I didn't even know were sinful. I can remember um, a few years into my walk with Christ, and, and, and we were in a church, and we were studying the book of James, and you come to this passage in James, in James 4 and verse 17, and, and the scripture says, therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it is sin. And I'm like, what? I thought I was good. I, I've, I've not been doing all of these things. And now you're telling me it's not just the things that I do that are sinful, but it's sinful to not do some things also. And I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he began to press in on me and to show me, you know, you really ought to have done this and you really ought to have done this and you really ought to have done this. If you know to do right and you don't do it, it's sin. And God bought, brought me to a place of brokenness in which I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought, man, I thought, man I've got this thing together. I've, I've stopped doing this and I've stopped doing this and I've stopped doing this and I'm... I'm walking and I'm feeling pretty good about myself and the Lord brings me to his word and he exposes my heart and he says, you're not there yet. He brings you to a place of mourning over sin because he continually reveals to us the depth of our sinfulness. You see, it's not just the things that we do and it's not just the things that we don't do, but even sometimes the things that we dwell on in our mind can become sinful. Now, if a thought enters your mind, you can deal with it and not be sinful. But if you dwell on it, it can certainly be sinful. To let your thoughts lead you away from the Lord, it can be sinful. You see, the closer you grow to Christ, the more light He shines into your soul. The closer you grow to Christ, the more you realize just how sinful you are but also how magnificent He is. Because the more you recognize how sinful you are, the more you recognize the, the glory of the grace that He shed abroad in your heart. The more you recognize the magnitude of the sacrifice of Christ and what it accomplished. You see, because we come before Him not on our own terms, but in light of the gospel and the finished work of Christ. Mourning our sinful condition keeps us coming before the Lord in repentance, which in turn draws us closer to Him and helps us to know Him better 
as He brings comfort to us. I think the Apostle Paul captures this well for us in Romans chapter 7, and really almost the whole of chapter 7, but I want to just share with you a few verses towards the end, chapter, in verses 23 through 25. Paul says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul mourned over the battle of sin that was raging within him, and, but he recognized also that Christ had come to set him free. So spiritual mourning comes in that reality in which we deal with our own sinfulness. But it is also a brokenness over the impact of sin on the world in which we live. It's not just the impact of sin in our own lives, but as we look around the world and we see the impact of sin around us. Craig Blomberg in the New Testament or the New American Commentary has said this mourning includes grief caused by both personal sin and loss and social evil. And oppression. You know, when you look at the world around us, we see the impact of sin. And the evil in this world, and the bad things that happen, and the, and the, the horrors of the things that happen all around us. You know, a lot of times we look at something and we say that's horrible, but we don't take time to think about and to recognize that it's all because of sin that it's happening. It's all because of sin that people are suffering. It's all because of sin that people are hurting. It's all because of sin that people are going through these horrific things. Not just personal sin, but just the curse of sin in general. We see that mourning, even, even in the life of Christ, we see Him mourning over the impact of sin. We see Him mourning over the impact of sin sin in the, in the lives of people who refused to repent and to believe and, and clung to their sinful ways. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, it says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the people because they refused the truth of who he was and what he had come to accomplish. As we look into our community, and if we look into the larger culture, do we mourn over the condition of people's hearts? Or are we simply offended by their indifference or their opposition to the faith? I think that's typically our response. We look at things going wrong in the world around us and we just get offended. We get offended at their offense. We get offended at their reactions. We get offended at their thing. We ought not to be just offended. We ought to mourn over their condition. That they've been separated from God and that they're doomed to an eternal hell unless they repent and believe in Christ. We must come to that point of mourning the impact of sin on the world around us. Those whose hearts truly belong to Christ are continually being formed to His likeness, which means we grow in loving the things that He loves. 
and that we are burdened by the things that burden him. And I promise you, he's burdened by the lostness in the world around us. And we ought to be burdened by it as well. I mean, that's why Jesus came. The world needed a redeemer. The world needed forgiveness. And he came to accomplish that. How can we not mourn over the condition of souls bound up in sin? And how can we not to do how can we not want to do everything we can both individually and corporately to bring the hope of Jesus into the lives of those around us? If our hearts are in line with God's hearts, we will God's heart, we will mourn over sin. Sin in our lives and sin in the world. And when we mourn over sin, it says we will be comforted. Comfort is coming from the one who is the comforter. Scripture speaks of of God as being the father of mercy and the God of all comfort. It speaks of the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us as believers, as a helper and a comforter. For all who call upon the name of Christ to be saved are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're comforted as our mourning moves us to action. And this, this really is, is it's kind of exciting to me to think about the way that God comforts us. It's not just a, a supernatural peace, which, which we do experience from time to time in the difficulties of life and, and, and the hardships that we face and, and in mourning, but it's the reality that, that when, we're, when we truly mourn over sin, that it moves us to act on it. It moves us to act in our own lives to overcome sin, but it also moves us to act in the sense in which, in which we're motivated to share the gospel with others. And what can bring more comfort to our heart when we mourn over the sins of those around us than to see people set free from the bondage of sin and to come to faith in Christ? When we see God working through our testimony and we see God working through our proclamation of the gospel, when we see God working through our efforts in order to bring people to salvation and to free them from sin, that's comforting to us. To see God at work through what he's, from just us doing what he's called us to do. Psalm 126 verse 6 says this, it says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That is an evangelistic declaration from the psalmist. It says, if you go out weeping over the, the, uh, the sins of people, sowing the seed of the gospel, you will return rejoicing in the harvest that the Lord produces. The brokenness of faith over sin experiences comfort when mourning brings us closer to Christ and motivates us to share the gospel with others. We, that is the brokenness of faith. So we have seen the beginning of faith, the brokenness of faith, but I want you to see in this, in verse number five, the burden of faith. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It doesn't sound too much of a, of a burden, but it, does when we, it is a burden when we understand the reality of what this word means. That word translated as gentle in the New American Standard 
and sometimes translated as meek. And unfortunately for us, I think there's no word in the English language that accurately and fully translates from what the Greek word is here. It is, it is a word that, that many have made attempts to uh, define in, in various ways. And I want to share with you a, a definition, or a, rather part of an article that comes out of a, a, uh, one of the Bible dictionaries that I use in explaining this word. It says, primarily it does not denote outward expression of feeling, but an inward grace of the soul, calmness toward God in particular. It is the acceptance of God's dealings with us, considering them as good, and that they enhance the closeness of our relationship with Him. It encompasses expressing wrath toward the sin of man, as demonstrated by the Lord Jesus, who indeed was called meek, but expressed His anger toward those who were chiding Him because He had done good on the Sabbath day, in Mark 3, 5. This meekness does not blame God for the persecutions and evil doings of men. It is not the result of weakness, and in the third beatitude, it expresses not the passivity of the second beatitude, but the activity of the blessedness that exists in one's heart from being actively angry at evil. According to Aristotle, it is that virtue that stands between two extremes, uncontrolled and unjustified anger, and not becoming angry at all, no matter what takes place around you. I've heard it explained in other places as this way, that the gentleness or the meekness that is in picture here is that of power under control. It's been, it's been described as, as a, a picture of a horse that has been broken and bridled. It's powerful for the accomplishing of whatever you want to do as long as you control it. That same sort of gentleness is to be present in the life of believers. That we are called to be, to be a people who are not just simply offended and who react to every circumstance, even though we may have the authority or the capability or the ability to react and to affect a change, but that we would be under control of the Holy Spirit so that our actions don't bring about the fulfillment of our own desire, but rather that our actions bring about the purpose and the desire of God. You see, our tendency is to act in accordance with our flesh. When somebody does something to us, we want to react. When somebody um, offends us, we want to do something to teach them a lesson. When somebody acts in a way that we don't like, a lot of times we react in order that we might accomplish our purposes. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to hold ourselves in, and to have a measure of self-control in which we reserve our actions based on our, based on our uh, fleshly desire in order that we may act in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what's in view here. When he talks about being gentle, it's not just being, being passive and being weak and just kind of letting things happen all around us. I mean, that's not what Jesus well, I mean, Jesus was meek and he was gentle, but that meekness and gentle, it was a power that was under control. I mean, when Jesus went to the, went to the temple and the money changers were there and he drove them out with a whip and, and he flipped over the tables, that was power exemplified, but it was still under control. Because he had the authority and the power to bring judgment on the people and he just made an example of them. He didn't bring the full weight of judgment against them, 
But he made an example out of him. He was still under control. But think about this. When Jesus went to trial, when he went to be flogged, when he went to the cross, he had the power to overturn all of his oppressors. He had the power to bring judgment on those who were beating him. He didn't act on that because he needed to submit to the will of his Father to accomplish a greater purpose. And that's where we find ourselves as believers when we're reacting to the world around us, when we're reacting to the people around us, when we're reacting to the things that are going on amongst the church, when we're reacting to things that are going on amongst our family. We have to remember that we need to remain in control of our responses in order that we might glorify God. And when we do, The blessing that comes to us is that which is captured for us in verse 5. It says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The promise to the believer is one of a future blessing in which all of creation belongs to us through Christ. This is a, a very interesting passage because the, the in, in particular, it says they shall inherit the earth. The, the word earth is also sometimes translated as land. It's the very same word whether you translate it as land or, or as earth. And if you translate it as land, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the land, then it immediately brings um, the immediately references and brings to mind the promises of the Old Testament to Israel to the promised land which was given to them by God. They were promised um, this, this land that they would inherit that would be a land flowing with milk and honey. It was, the land, it was the land of promise which figuratively also represented that eternal reality in which God was giving, was, is, has promised a land, um, a land of abundance and a land free from suffering and excuse me, a land of, of blessing and of bounty. But we also understand in light of those realities, the, the land of Canaan being figuratively for that heavenly reality, that when he talks about the earth, that ultimately God's purpose of redemption is for the whole earth. When Christ returns, his redeeming plan for the whole earth, he, he came to make all things new. He's made us new for, first, but He's also making all of creation new in order that we might be able to enjoy it in eternity in the way that He intended it at creation. Revelation 21.1, the Apostle John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Christ is coming to make all things new and He's giving it to us as an inheritance. We're going to reign with Him. We're going to dwell with Him. We're going to enjoy the perfection of creation in which we will dwell in peace and prosperity 
and where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, and we will live in the presence and in the glory of God for all eternity. That's the promise that he's given, that we shall inherit the earth. There is a future blessing coming to us which is greater than anything that we've ever known. We may forfeit the blessings of this world now, and let's face it, there's a whole lot of things that we do in our life now which we're focused on the blessings of this world, that we're pursuing the blessings of this world. Christ says, listen, all of that is corrupt. All of that is so much less than what I'm offering you because you're going to inherit not just the prosperity of this world, but you're going to inherit the prosperity of a world that is so much better than the one that it now exists. That's what's coming to us through Jesus Christ. We shall inherit the prosperity of Christ in that glorious future which He has promised to those who follow Him. That which is perfected in creation. From in, in the new creation. The favor of God, the blessing of God coming upon believers. Believers whose heart is rightly tuned to Him, beginning with a right evaluation of ourselves, which is what these first three Beatitudes have to deal with. It has to do with how we understand our position before God. Are we poor in spirit? If you've never experienced poverty of spirit, you've not been saved. Poverty of spirit is the beginning of faith. You can't be saved until you know you need to be saved. You can't be saved until you come to the point of humility in which, in which you recognize you have nothing to offer God and it's all of Him. The beginning of faith but then the ongoing reality of our walk with Christ creates in us a, a brokenness in our, in our walk and in our understanding of our own sinfulness as we mourn over our sinfulness and the struggle that we have, but as we also mourn over the lost world around us, seeking to make an impact for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that we might also carry the burden of faith in which we are seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, that's the burden. The burden is the reality as we recognize our weakness. The burden is the reality that, that we want to respond in our flesh, but we're holding back our fleshly response in order that we might glorify God. It's that reality in which we're seeking to honor God with our actions and to suppress and to overcome and to crucify the flesh that is within us. That's the burden that we carry. We have to understand this, this is who Christ says that we ought to be. The true, the true character of a Christian is one that recognizes that the necessity of humility. It's one that recognizes that we have, excuse me, that we have nothing to offer God that mourns over sin and that has the desire to glorify God above all else. We have to have a right evaluation of ourselves in this. And God's favor rests on us as we pursue him. So that the character of Christ might be manifested in us. All of these beatitudes are reflected in Christ. Even you think, well, how was Jesus poor in spirit? Well, he was poor in spirit in that he wasn't prideful in spirit. 
He may, not have, he may not have had to come to the point of recognizing he had nothing to commend himself to God, but he had everything to commend himself to God, but yet he didn't hold himself above anybody else. Jesus, who is the Lord of all creation, girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. He says, I'm giving to this as an example that you who want to be great, be the servant of all. We see that Jesus mourned. We, we looked at that. He mourned over the, the lostness of those around him and of their spiritual blindness. And we saw his, his gentleness and his submission in going to the cross. And all of these things are meant for us to follow his example. And as we consider those things and we consider our own lives and we consider what impact this is meant to have for us individually. I just want you to ask yourself the very thing that I did at the beginning. What does God want me to do with this? How have I exemplified poverty of spirit? How have I mourned over sin? How have I been gentle, experiencing control over my flesh in sort of that I might glorify God. This is what he desires from us. This is what he's moving us toward in, in recognition. Listen, in the description of faithfulness, we'll put it that way, in the description of faithfulness, Christ recognizes our weakness. That's why we need to be taught. He recognizes our need for these things. That's why he gives them to us. He recognizes our, the necessity that we be reminded and that we be encouraged to follow after Him. But we do that through a heart of repentance. We do that from a place of humility in which we submit ourselves to God's plan and God's purpose regardless of our circumstances. Listen, whatever you're dealing with in life, whatever you're going through, whatever hardships you face, submit to God's plan and purpose. He can do so much more than what you can do. You might think that you would love for things to turn out a certain way, and it might be good, but I promise you it's not as good as what God intends for you. Submit yourself to Him and to His way. Humble your heart before a holy God and respond to the calling that he places on you. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, come to you, Lord, seeking forgiveness, recognizing that in myself, Lord, I've not always been gentle in the way that you describe here. I've not always exemplified a poverty of spirit. I've not always mourned over sin the way that I should. But Lord, it is my desire for these things to be true of my life. And I know it's the desire of so many that are listening this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would give us a renewed passion in our hearts to exemplify this character that we see at work in you. 
And I pray, Father, for those that have never experienced it, Lord, that you would move in their heart, even at this moment, to bring them to a place of conviction in which they surrender themselves to you, in which they call upon you, Father, for forgiveness and for renewal of heart and for new life. Oh, Father, I pray that you would save somebody this day in accordance with the, for the glory of your great and holy name, in accordance with the preaching of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would renew your people to give us a passion for you, a passion that we've allowed to grow cold as we've just become so complacent in our reactions to your word, to even to the meeting together in your church, Father, that we allow so many things to take precedent. Oh, Lord, bring conviction on our hearts and lead us to a place of submission so that you might work in us and you might work through us and that your name would be exalted among the body of Northside Baptist Church. Father, have your way and lead us to respond to you this day. In Jesus' name.